This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for the 161st minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus is a man who I've spoken to a couple of times before, the last time eight months ago, and during that conversation, as we trailed off and stopped recording but continued to have a chat, um, this man said to me, look, Blake, if there are any minutes during that final chase where these guys are running through the airport, like, I'm all over it. I'm your man. I want to be back. And I, at the time, I think that some people, when they assume that they say that to me on the show, that I'm not immediately going to look down because I have the entire show mapped down <laughs> on a schedule. <laughs> and I was like, your name is penciled in, sir, from now until that happens. So this is what's going down. Um, the man I'm talking to is, of course, the host of the Cultural Cap podcast, uh, TP Season 3, um, and is a journalist for the Saturday paper and a man who watches an ungodly amount of movies. So I'm very pleased that I've finally broken into his schedule. Uh, about to fly to Cannes. I'm insanely jealous and I'm like super excited for him. Andy Hazel, welcome back to One Minute, mate. Thanks so much. That's a hell of an introduction. I'll be <laughs> trying to live up to that for the rest of the show. <laughs> you, 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 live, you live up good. You, you're, you know, you've been a guest before. You've come back. You're, you're fellow. Mm. By the time people are listening now, I think Ello's done uh, two episodes. You've come back. So it's exciting. Uh, it's exciting to have you back. And thank you for I'm just cheersing you through Skype as yeah. we're talking right now. Um, thank you for um, coming back as these uh, in the final lead up, in the final Wow, in the final six minutes um, yeah. of this movie. Yeah, congratulations for making it this far. It's been a hell of a trip. I think when I, when I was last on, you were just at, over the halfway mark. Yes, I'm going I'm yeah. gonna, gonna to fact check you exactly. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, it, this, yeah, it was, it, it was it, a good minute. It, it, it is. This is nuts. Andy, no, we were literally smack bang the 85th episode of the 170 minutes you were here. So... Um, yep. yeah, like, wow, it's, it's, it's been 70 episodes in eight months, but it's, uh, it's been a, oh, it's been a, it's been a great journey and thank you so much for being a part of it. Um, guys, of course. we're going to dive into this, you know, we're, we're, we're at the airport in one of these amazing industrial, almost like extraterrestrial, both indoor and outdoor Manian landscapes that seem to populate this, um, incredible LA crime saga and Andy and I are going to dive into it and unpack it for you but of course as we do every episode we're going to watch along you guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about
There it is, my friend. Yeah. Great minute. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, there's just so much going on psychologically with these guys in this minute. Um, and I just, you know, in a lot of chase sequences, I think in the very best action movies and chase sequences that happen in action movies, whether it's on foot or, you know, car chases, it's that actual, there's an emotional trajectory that's being followed with the characters that you can read in their, in their emotions that they're conveying. Like movement is a great thing. It's a great shorthand and just allows people to stop being chatty and stop spitting exposition and actually just be doing something and moving the plot forward both literally and figuratively. And I think that in this minute, what I love is that there's just such a, there's so much going on and they kind of overcome one of the bad movie tropes when you're working with aging actors is like they overcome dad running. Like they really yeah. overcome, it's like furious, yeah. like tenacious pursuit, frantic escape. Uh, these two guys that you so want to finally meet and it, it feels like in this alien landscape, there's like a split second chance they might not. And it's just a wonderful little exchange that I can't wait to sort of dive into with you. But there's just a, a mm. lot going on without a word even being spoken. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about this is actually that that's particular thing, the lack of dialogue, the fact that the only sound is white noise. There's so much darkness. I mean, we're almost moving into a vortex here yes. in the way that we're setting positioning characters. Like you were saying, they're almost like being moved like chessboard pieces. And it's interesting to see like a chessboard pattern on these boxes of these some um, signal towers that we actually see or not towers, sorry, signal stations or these sort of concrete bunkers that they're running between. And I love it's, the, uh, it. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. I love the bunkers, the, the, the talk there of like, that their chess piece is moving is because um, if there's something so anti-chess about the, like you imagine that chess, even when it's frantic, it's, it's so calculating. And what's cool about this moment is that like you actually get to be the pieces that are moving on the board. Like you don't yeah. understand what's going on. Like everything's frantic. And for one of the first times uh, it, it sort of happened in a tangential way when Neil goes into Treo's house for the first time. And when mm -hmm. he walks into the house, he he's in a panic, you know, he's eyeing corners before he sees the, you know, the unfortunate scene with Anna and then he sprints into the room and finds Treo splayed on the ground with the halo of blood, I think we called, coined it at the time. Yeah. And there's that moment where he's like, his eyes are darting. And he's he's spotting for things, and the camera, the camera's personality is echoing his his like his fears, his heightened state. And so, what's so cool here is like watching, finally seeing it. You know, Neil McCauley shedding armor and being in his most wild animalistic state. Like he's just looking around things. These things are almost unrecognizable. He's just trying to find some kind of cover. He's trying to find some normality. He looks in a panic. He's out of breath. And even Vincent, like Vincent streams through, but Pacino, even as, as soon as he clicks that gun and there's nothing mm. there, bang, gun straight out. He's got great gunmanship, if you like. I don't know what the word, the correct word is, like <laughs> a gun form. He points his pistol up in the air. And as Sean, Sean Burns, the great Bostonian critic, pointed out, it's, of course, he has like a white ivory handle on it. Uh, no one <laughs> yeah. else would. He's got his ivory yeah. pistol. He pointed up and he's like ready. He's like, he, he feels so much more hypercharged. It's Pacino in his element here and yeah. De Niro all over the place. Yeah, yeah. But I also love how cool, but their faces like don't really betray that. Their body does, though, which I think is really interesting. And I love how they, that the throwing away of the rifle 
pretty much almost exactly mimics um, Macaulay's throwing away of the tie just as he's leaving the, ho- the hotel a yes. couple of minutes earlier. Like they're both just kind of discarding this stuff. There's this beautiful inevitability uh, inevitability about, about what's coming and the fact that we all know and they all know that this thing has been preordained. And so watching what man does with, does with this and how he puts them in this particular landscape, in this landscape that's like totally familiar to millions and millions of Americans but also we unrecognizable, like you were saying. Like it's such a beautiful – place for this to happen and it's actually lax like he's not running off you know, he's not doing burbank he's not doing some sort of smaller <laughs> like airport like it's literally lax there's a massive passenger jet there's with the heat shimmer that they're running between there's a red lights it's just such a fascinating environment for this all to be playing out in and like it, 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 you're so right there about you know it's it's a space that you've it's like a it's almost like a median strip on a freeway that you drive on every day like it exists yeah, yeah. it exists in in this like weird tell you know um ultra high telescopic view that you're always it's like this constant underpassing 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 and it's it's familiar but at the same time yeah it's this and it's also a dead zone it's a space yeah. where like nothing is allowed to nothing's allowed to flourish because it's meant to be an intentional dead zone and so you know makes it a, a more I don't know how to describe it other than there's like a, I don't know, where something's not allowed to grow, there's a, there's an increased sense of foreboding. And like you're so right, LAX, for, for everyone who's listening, I just want to contextualize because I don't know, um, you know, recording some of these episodes out of order, I'm not sure if it's actually been said as explicitly as I think I need to share it right now talking to Andy is this is important. This is impossible to make to even have a conversation to make this film this way now, 2019. Even six years after this movie was made, it is an impossible conversation. They are not letting film crews with actors and randoms and lighting and things on an on a passenger runway or anywhere, even yeah, on the fringes yeah. of an mm-hmm. airport. And you know, I guess the the confidence. And the assured way that, like, and, and, and Michael Mann's reputation, both in his, in the sense of the studio and, and as a filmmaker, and and I guess the prestige that this whole project had is like, they could say that this ending and this airport and this space is so essential to the makeup of the story and and what what we intuit that Michael Mann is trying to say about the film in this space is it's like there's only one way that this movie gets, you know ends. I think is what we're coming down to, but there's only one way that it gets made. And like you said, it, it it can't be subbed in for another airport. Like Michael Mann almost feels like he would never sub Burbank for LAX. He would never do it. And, and, and there are funny stories um, that are out there. I'm just actually, I'm going to, I'm going to pull, I think I've got, there's a, I'm actually going to pull one of them out here. Sorry. It's like a a magic trick on, on the phone for, 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 on the Skype for Andy and I, there's a yeah, little, like he's pulling out some books and he's pulling out... Uh, yeah. the, there's a Pocket Essentials Michael Mann book um, that's actually written by a guy by the name of Mark Steensland. And he talks about, in this book, um, he's talking about, like, there's just some, like, extra ancillary points, like little, like, uh, uh, trivia things, if you like, that are around the different scenes. And he's talking about the airport and it, it's app- apparently... Um, they they gave like gifts to the air traffic controllers 
like stakes, I think he actually says in the book. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah, to to just <laughs> to redirect traffic away from this particular moment just for like no a, way. Short, a short amount of time so they could actually make the shots work. They're like, oh, can you please do it? And so apparently that's what happened. If I ever get a chance to talk to Michael Mann on the show, that might be one of my questions I'll be asking is like, yeah. like I mean, I know we're close to the end, but it could happen. Um, you know, how, how do they actually make this happen? Because that's what just flabbergasts me when I'm watching this. I'm not only so innately focused on these two guys, this happening, this weird but familiar space. I'm also just mm. – I'm also going – in 2019, this couldn't exist. How could yeah, this possibly yeah. end like this? Or, or to your point, it's at a Burbank airport where, like, there are no flights after X time. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah so, exactly. they, so they charter a couple of small planes to make some sound to, like, take off and, you know, land, etc. But it's not something you couldn't shoot this at Sydney Airport. You couldn't shoot it at LAX. Yeah. You couldn't shoot it in Heathrow. It's, it's just not happening. Yeah, it's a crazy scene. Um, and also I love the way that it is literally separating these two from the rest of the world. Like yes. we're not going to be seeing anything else of L.A. Ne- from now on. Like no. we're going into this dark place full of white noise, full of danger, with these strange sort of buildings that we've never seen but also in this place that's really familiar. It's this fantastic little um, like almost limbo, I suppose, that we're moving into now. Yeah, it, it allows it, it gives itself a chance to be abstract for a moment. Because also I think it's like stripping it away. You mm-hmm. made some really great points around we're essentially getting to the to the root of what this film is. You know, this film is these two guys on this cat and mouse chase and there's a lot of artifice that's around it. Um, and al- although it's exceptionally well designed and authentically portrayed and then obviously, you know, purposely melodramatic in some ways and romantic um, and, you know, gargantuan, you know, just spreads this huge concept of cat and mouse, cop and crook um, mm. against, against each other into this huge epic space. But so now it's like, it's so great that after all of this, you know, right now this transient space that is this airport is like the, is the, is the cure all. It's almost like when you do go to an airport and you have to like strip down, check your baggage, like to go in this space, it's just you. It's you and whatever you carry. <laughs> like yeah. you don't, you don't have anything else. And the movie's like, we don't have anything else for you except what this movie is, which is this guy versus this guy. And if they face each other, one of them's going to walk away. Yeah. So like, like toward the beginning of this minute, we kind of realise there's not going to be any airport security getting involved in this situation. No. It's just these two guys. They're like they're in this in this place. And I, what I really love is the camera work, particularly puts you in the place of Macaulay. So like when he's looking around, the camera is doing whip pans, like just after just following his gesture at the same Follow, sort of rate. Following his eyes, yeah. Yeah, which really puts us in that in that in his like in his space, which is we, which is great because it shows that man's kind of keeping our empathy up with both characters right to the end. We're not going to be pushed aside with anybody, particularly. Yeah, yeah. So you're so right. It's that this whole movie has been a trajectory of these two parallel characters and heightening the empathy for each character, basically determined predetermined by whoever's on screen. It's like so simple. It's like whoever's on screen is who we're empathizing with. And you're right. In this minute. The, there's, I don't know, it's one of the more even-handed chases. You've just got like beat yeah. the beat in the chase. And then as soon as we actually cut around, what would you call that, Andy? Is it like, it, it, it's like the protection for the jet engines. They put the Yeah, huge, I wasn't sure. It's like this curved concrete barrier yeah, of cur- some sort. curved concrete wave 
I'm sure there's some aeronautics technician, Pete yeah. Boffin, who's like screaming yeah. a name. Idiots, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sorry. We just, well, uh, Googling is not that good. But whatever <laughs> that thing is, um, as soon as it runs behind, um, there is a much more pronounced beat of like, we are really, uh, the, there's been a couple of quick flashes in this upcoming chase where we're get, kind of getting in the guys' faces, but a lot of it is like bodies. And I think one of the things mm. I appreciate is you appreciate the scope and the expanse, but right now, just as we've approached this sort of group of, you know, uh, signaling stations and boxes or whatever these things are, um, now that we're up close and personal with Neil as he's trying to, you know, gain some kind of uh, cover, some kind of supremacy, some kind of surprise that's about to happen. Um, he's really, that, that's how you can intuit the panic. That's how you can intuit the frantic nature of Neil for like one of the first times. It's like he's whipping around, he's looking for cover, he's looking for the advantage. And Vincent for this entire time has had the upper hand with the shotgun and right now it's like, oh, yeah, Neil has cover. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting because he chooses to stop running. Like he could potentially keep going, but he's, instead he's like waiting behind a wall. He's turning the cameras with him like while well, he's got the, having these beats right towards the end of the minute. And then there's that really, really beautiful move in the last few seconds of this minute where the camera stops like trained on being trained on him and looks around the corner waiting for like Hannah to come toward him, which he's, which Macaulay isn't doing. He's staying back there, but we're like anticipating this, this confrontation. It's just a, such a beautiful use of cameras. It's a, just a disembodied camera, right? It just go. It yeah. just flo- it's like it's his probing of his mind and the camera's doing it for him. It's still attached, but it's a really nice, subtle maneuver of like, especially when you've been with subjective camera for a lot of the time, yeah. when it just mm. slips into this like sense of objectivity or third person because so much of this movie has been... First person, first person, first person, first person. These two guys battling against one another. And even in the wonderful coffee shop scene, it is still Mm. so about the ebbs and flows of energy. And right now here it's about this is, I don't know, this is the manifestation of like, you know, they called it. They both called it. Like they called the outcome. It was a predestined. I think you used the word. It was like they. this was a moment that was – predetermined and predestined you know they called it it's happening and that disembodied camera floats to the right just like a wraith and it comes out it's a really eerie space this whole thing it is thing, yeah this whole it's thing very is, unusual shapes yeah and the, and the way you've got these kind of tendrils leave um going running off the top of the roofs of these buildings with the lights and with the antenna i mean clear, i mean obviously there's some sort of signal relaying station or something like that so it is this kind of place, which is interesting because the communication between these two characters has been really interesting and it's shifted all the way through. There's been these beautiful scenes of people observing other people, people listening in, and now we have this kind of showdown in this place, which is this like um, focal point for these sorts of signals, for these communications to happen between these two, these distant objects, like, you know, um, like air, air, airport towers and planes and these sorts of places. It's, I think it's just a really interesting choice for him to put it here. I mean, there, there would have been other options, other places that he could have chosen. I think man could have chosen if he wanted to. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure if this is geographically correct. If you're coming off Century Boulevard where that hotel is into the LA, like if it makes sense. You know, often places will cheat, you know, movies will cheat these sort of yeah, locations it's, a lot. Yeah, it's the airport Hilton does actually make geographical sense. It does, great, great. Yeah, okay, yeah. Cool. So, so that, that, that we can talk about. Um, I just also think that it's it's one of those things where – 
white noise has a wonderful, like as a, you know, we just talked about the camera movements, we just talked about the frantic, but it's like, I remember a great quote on a terrific, like OG radio show turned podcast in Australia called Get This. Tony, <laughs> Martin, Tony Martin is the host and Ed Cavalier. I play in a band with Tony Martin. I'm not sure if you know that. What? I play in a band called Damien Cowell's Damien Disco Machine. Damien Cowell's Disco Machine. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the bass player in that band with Tony Martin. So, yeah, and I know he's a fan of this movie, actually. Maybe I should try and get him on. <laughs> Holy shit, Andy. Yeah. Sorry, we're, anyway, We're yeah. going to have to talk about that off air. That's a whole yeah, other conversation. But on that wonderful radio show, they did an interview with Danny Boyle, and it was around the time of Slumdog Millionaire. I believe it was in his, you know, it was like an international, obviously the movie was an international hit, and he, he was going around, and Danny Boyle just said something like a, a director, and he's, he's wonderful Scottish brogue. He said, you know, movies are 70% sound. And so what I love in uh, what I've kept thinking about in, in the lead up to the climax of this movie and what I've kept thinking about is, you know, sound is something that is manipulated so wonderfully and sometimes oddly in this movie. You know, we'll go from, you know, the Lisa Gerard atmospheric choral scores that are really familiar from, you know, it, it, you know, sort of signatures of big classical movie making. And then you go to weird, um, you know, Moby, um, you know, Moby takes on New Order, you know, stuff yeah, like, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it, you go to these different kind of approaches to how you build atmosphere. But there's nothing like white noise, you know, especially when you're in a noisy city. There's nothing like white noise of a fan or the scream of a plane that is in the, in the deep background. Um, or in the foreground for some of these, it was like the sound of those engines to just like, it literally evaporates the rest of the world. Like, yes. you, you, and, yeah. and I think what's so good in it's, I want to say like, I have to say like 45 seconds of this minute possibly is like exactly to what you were talking about there, Andy, is the white noise of the planes really anchors your focus into just the physical and the camera and the visuals of these guys running and the whip pans. And so sound doesn't really mean anything except for that great like click. I think that's the most pronounced thing I can think of is the shotgun yeah. click. Yeah. And then the abandonment of the shotgun and his, his arms up and a few sort of speedy breaths. But then when this camera goes into its disembodied, you know, wraith-like ebbing, yeah, if you like, yeah, flo- floating yeah. away from Neil McCauley, it's in that deathly silence between planes landing. And it's just, yeah. it's so, I think it adds to the eeriness, but it also then has this weird, like, you know, see, you know focusing of your of all of your signals because you then become this, this probing as well, hearing things and that. I don't know, it's in such a heightened state that you've been in this entire movie, you know, sound and then completely eliminating the sound, I think is just something that is just so out of control. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because there's action in this minute when there is uh, the the plane, when there's the white noise, that's when there's running. Yes. So it's almost like they try to use the white noise as cover or something like that. And what I, what I find really interesting in this particular minute is the way that all the action takes place pretty much in the bottom third of the screen. Yes. Because there's so much darkness, nighttime planes in the top thir- top two thirds. Yes. I um, mean, you've got, you've got those lights kind of poke, poking up off, off the buildings as well, but there's the running. It's very low. It's very oppressive. Yes. And mm. it's almost like you would imagine 
if you were running through an airport, even especially when you don't fully have your bearings, you kind of would. Yeah, I, you I feel like you yeah. would like cra- yeah, like crouch, hunch over whatever you call. It. And 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 to your point as well, um, just at the like the first flashes of this scene. There's that great dark silhouette of Neil Macaulay against yes, that yeah. curvature of those sort of concrete things. So you sort of see, you know, t- tooling with light and dark here, um, and, and yeah, just sort of playing around. And but from a physical standpoint, um, I really like—I don't know about you, Andy—but I really like old guys running, like and actually <laughs> really running. And like these are guys yeah. in uncomfortable shoes and suits, and they're running. It's not like Taken Three where there's. 48 mm. cuts to watch Liam Neeson dump, jump over a fence. It's yes. it's like these guys, you know, for two or three seconds, we're watching them just run through a field or like make a beeline yeah. to a piece of cover um, uh, because this is what they need to do. And, and you know, it's I, I just also loved like from a pure physical, I it's one of those key authentic pieces. It's like it's not some random dude. It's not, you know, who's an amazing sprinter that's running. It's... Al Pacino running and yeah. he's not a guy that you would normally associate with having to sprint really well. Um, no, uh, no, but, neither of these guys are. No, they're much, yeah, but, they're much but, used to, more used to pursuing people in cars and stuff. <laughs> yeah, um, cars or small spaces, but yeah, no, the sprinting, uh, possibly not. Yeah, well, I like how this is such an alien environment. We don't even have the right words for the objects in it. <laughs> like, yes. I mean, this is, this is strange. But also, like watching it with the sound off, it's very Hitchcockian. Oh, the yeah. way that the, the framing, the running, this sort of thing, it really feels like the end of one of his sorts of films. I feel like man would probably cop to that. Yeah, I think he would too. I, what's so funny, you just triggered me to a moment where it's like um, there's a – I think it was maybe like – I want to say like the as early as the ninth minute of this movie, um, Luke Buckmaster, huge friend of the show, great friend of mm-hmm. mine – came on the show and said exactly that of like man's movement, you know, he definitely knows what he he learned some of the lessons of the Hitchcock movement. Like he knew about geography. He knows about movement, about a sense of movement and inevitability of a location, like things moving toward each other or coming together. And there's just something so very classical Um, in, in other movies, you know, later on in Michael Mann's career, um, he does such a wonderful job of, you know, stripping away narrative and sort of working with like pure, you know, pure cinematic uh, things, just pure movement, like takes away narrative stripping. And I think that's in, in heat, you know, this is after you've built, you know, a movie for 160 minutes, almost three hours, like stripping it back to just like, what do we need to see? We need to see movement. We need to get a sense that they're going to be still coming together. And like you said, we can't even wrangle the words to get out um, yeah. what the landscape is, <laughs> yeah. but just the feeling of like we are no we're nowhere. This is almost like it, it reeks of a graveyard. You know, there's other things mm. that have been foreshadowing yes. graveyards. Yeah. You know, an overgrown graveyard with this you know gnarled, weird, you know, post-apocalyptic industrial headstones um, that are sort of monstrous. These guys darting in between them. Um, so, you know, it's, it's like some kind of freakish, weird, uh, you know, um, armed forces course, you know, gone wrong, um, in, in LAX and these guys are sort of streaming about doing what they've got to do, but there's always a sense in every second that the running's, the running's going to stop. 
Before mm. Neil stops, I think you get the sense that things are going to stop. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even and before what he takes a beat. Yeah, 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 true, yeah. Um, but also because this is – but what is so great about this is there is this sort of Hitchcockian vibe to it, but then inevitably what Hitchcock would do would be somebody would fall off something or someone would <laughs> die by falling. But we kind of get the exact reverse in that. Instead of a separation of characters, we get this sort of – you know, in the, in the following minute or maybe in a couple of minutes' time, I can't remember exactly when. Is it 165 when they have – when we finally hear some dialogue, yeah, it's uh, yeah, so it's, it's, so it's, it's an, exactly one sixty-five, right? So it's another four minutes of this sort of dialogue-free, <laughs> sort of movement of characters in this space. Um, but I love the, the way that this is kind of—it's something that's in, in like this beautiful mix of familiar and totally new at the same time. Yes. Um. Yeah, and that we're getting getting we're getting led to this sort of uh, scene that is like a classic closing scene of a film, partly classic because it does a twist on what we. I think we might be expecting or we've been trained to expect. Yeah, I, I think um, I think I recently and maybe every single person in the world recently <laughs> watched this based on box office numbers, but like there's a recent Avengers Endgame um, has just come out and so, you know, I'm not sure if you've even had a chance to see it yet. Have you had a chance to see it yet? Andy? No, I've seen the last couple but I haven't seen Endgame yet. I haven't seen Endgame. By the time you see it, I'll just say that, like, I wish that the filmmakers had had more had had more heat influence because I think <laughs> that sometimes, and, and in a lot of ways, the best qualities of Endgame, without spoiling stuff, is that uh, without spoiling anything, really, is the way that it descopes is because Infinity War is this gargantuan thing, um, culminates in this intergalactic battle. Um, you know, intergalactic battle royale with huge stakes and mm. and then ends and it's a shock because, yeah. you know, spoilers, Thanos yeah. snaps his fingers and ends half of life in, in the entire universe. And so mm. what I really deeply appreciate about Heat is that, like, after all of the madness that that, that is, and, like, you could probably speak it on the scale of, like, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, is, like, after the madness of the House of Blue Leaves... Yeah. Which, which ends Kill Bill Volume 1. There's something so wonderful and just, I don't know, just engaging, enthralling about taking it all back to just a conversation that's happening between a couple who really have an acrimonious relationship in the yeah. most insane <laughs> way. It's like just getting back to an argument across a table. And there's mm-hmm. something so nice. There's something so wonderful about it that you're like, you know, I think Tarantino gets that there's a level of intimacy after that epic that you need to get to to really satiate, you know, this fury that you've had with this guy, Bill, for this entire time that the bride's been on her furious vengeance crusade. And so I feel like in Heat and in movies like that, that sort of dial back the scale and get to the intimacy really, I don't know, they so deeply resonate with me because I think some mm-hmm. of the big ones just get so lost in what they think is spectacle yeah, or or maybe some folk really dig the spectacle, and that that's what really drives with them. But that's you know, and go back to another massive epic. It's like what what gets me about Lord of the Rings: Return of the King is not necessarily like the battle for Minas Tirith. It's four hobbits sitting around having a beer, looking at each other. Like <laughs> like at the end of all of the chaos, it's four do du- four tiny dudes that look around <laughs> and go, 
we've all changed like a lot. Like things yeah. have <laughs> shit has happened. Yeah, this is what I think is often missing from these sorts of scales. Is it consequences? Yes. Like, like there's like you can have all these like rampant amounts of death, but then there's no real any consequences until you have these sorts of moments where people are actually going, well, this actually happened, and this is what's going on. This is how I'm feeling, and this is what's changed, and this. Yeah, like, th- yeah. This so this is what kind of intrigues me about Endgame, as I understand it, is the first third of it is kind of people grieving, people coming together, people talking about stuff, and people planning what they're going to do next. Yeah, it's it's you know the Endgame has a cold open, um, and uh, it, it's it's I think it's one of the best moments of probably the movie and perhaps the series, um, just for that, for consequence, for like mm. for for fallout. Um, yeah, of, yeah right. of of things of things that have happened and. And so, yeah, like this, you know, the entire third act of this movie is just gut punch consequence after collateral damage after, you know, uh, manifest destiny of these people who, you know, they know who they are to the detriment of every relationship and everything that they're doing and and they're together. Like this is weird perverse romance if you like of like mm. these two guys who know each other so well were destined to come together and here's him here's them coming together as we thought but is this what we you know it's like two men enter one man leaves like there's, there's just yeah. there's no there's no positive but, outcome that comes out of this yeah but also i think it's really interestingly telegraphed in the previous i think it might be the previous minute where edie is sitting in the car and watches macaulay walk away yeah outside the hotel as he's leaving and it's, she's not the one chasing him it's no. Anna who's going after him like this is the people running towards an airport trying to stop the other one getting on the plane kind of ending of a movie sort of like dynamic that's the sort of movement of characters I think you would have in a movie like that well, look, you know like a Richard Curtis kind of situation <laughs> Richard Curtis this is the second person this is the second person who's compared uh, Richard Curtis and Michael Mann in in, in <laughs> as many episodes. I want to just really like, yeah. okay. Well, the great Sorry. Bill Chambers is a trailblazing website editor, terrific film critic um, who runs FilmFreakCentral.net. He's been around since like 1998. Like it's the Garth Franklin school of you know movie internet you know readers, a rabid fan base. Um, and Bill said, "I feel like this is Michael Mann's love, actually." And uh, oh, it's, wow. it's stuck with me ever since, um, uh, so deeply, and um, and so yeah, I'm just watching. I'm just Andy is just flabbergasted right now. That's actually yeah, I am. I'll, yeah, that's still. I'm still kind of reeling from that, that suggestion. <laughs> um, but so yeah, I just I think there's something. I just, I don't know. I just think there's something about. Um, yeah, there's some there's something about Neil finally for better or worse, adhering, you know, for, for folks who are listening to this episode, you know, the 161st minute, you would have heard a preceding episode with Connor Ratliff, I guess for a second time, you know, proposing his theory in minute 158 that, you know, you've got to drop everything of yours, even a wife, even a girl, in four, in 30 seconds flat if you see the heat coming around the corner. And in minute one fifty eight, and that's the exact minute that Andy is referencing now with Edie. It's like he's he's casting aside. We talked about it earlier. Like I love that. Like I'm gonna go back and watch those two things if I can if I can figure out how to make a gif of like him casting away a tie and and Al Pacino casting away a shotgun. I, I will do that. <laughs> um, but you know him casting away that tie, looking at Edie's eyes, and then catching Vincent. Yeah. And then the the machinations of his brain. Ticking, 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 looks at Edie, looking at Vincent, looking at Edie, looking at Vincent. That is literally him, like, spotting the heat in 30 seconds flat, 
and leaving. And yes. so, you know, mm. it's it's one of those things where these guys are destined to do this. They're destined mm. to do it. Yeah, and that can often be a curse for a lot of films where you kind of, you know, like I think a lot of the problems I had with Marvel films and is perhaps that you know that like, you know, seven-eighths of the way through we're going to get into a battle <laughs> and it's going to be inevitable and X person is going to win or whatever. <laughs> like this sort of stuff really doesn't work for a lot of, a lot of uh, stories. I think Lord of the Rings does work partly because of what you said earlier is that we have this epic, then we have the, the character. Yes. Um, and you know, you'll know how Lord of the Rings is going to end before you begin. But in this, and in this case with Heat, it's been telegraphed all the way through that this is inevitably what's going to happen. It's going to come down to these two guys. And I think man have, finds so many ways to keep this interesting and keep this fresh. Yes. Um, and a lot of that is to do with some of the, with, with the techniques that are on show in this minute as well. This, the way that he's using the camera, the way that we get this beautiful 180 degree dolly around, um, around, uh, uh, Hannah as he's, as he throws away the gun, pulls out the other, the pistol. You know, this, these sorts of ways that we're keeping these people in, in focus, then we're putting them in a situation, then we're back, they're back in focus again, then we have this, you know, these wider shots. Um, I just I just think it's, it's masterful. And then and there's no need for dialogue, there's no need for explanation. We're all on board. We know exactly, you know, how these people are working. And it's just beautiful to actually watch them finally, you know, after 160 minutes to get to this <laughs> point where um, where it's actually coming, coming together. Yeah, I think it's... I think you just nailed something for me around a lot of the th- of the films that don't work is around not only the that seven eighths through the movie seven eighths of the way through the movie are going to have a battle, but it's almost the curse of the Rocky series of like in at 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 exactly forty nine percent of the way through the movie the the hero and the villain are going to meet, and when they do meet, the, the hero is going to come off worse. And we're mm. going to pretend mm-hmm. like for the entire movie that it's not going to work. And I think what's so great about Heat is that it's 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 tussling with formula. But it's yeah. like, I'm not going to give you... I don't want these guys to like meet and then him to take him into an interrogation room and do any of this BS because that's, that's what happens in these movies. And him to get right. away with a lawyer. It's like... I want him to have a cup of coffee and a conversation where they talk about each other's dreams. <laughs> like, yeah. How, how weird is like from just a pure, like when you say it, it sounds weird. It's like, well, no, we're going to have a conversation with these two guys talk about each other's dreams. And we know that this is going to happen, but it's like, to your point also, it's like how important, you know, formal mastery is to reinforcing emotion and just stripping back and not having glib BS. Like, you know, eighties action movies, in so many ways do this so wonderfully. It's like the impact of Shane Black, you know, those guys just in the mm, same way that mm-hmm. the, the impact of Quentin Tarantino in, in the nineties. It's like you wanted eighties action guys to have cool lines and to punch people and, you know, uh, punch people and then have a punctuation with a great line or whatever. And everything's so glib, but here it's like, we don't need any of that. Like if you just shoot mm. it back to what's elemental, it's this guy versus this guy. They're on a ferocious chase. It is what it is. Yeah, yeah, and everything around it is reinforcing that, which is what I think is so makes this so stylish and so like you know of its time also. But there is this, a total timelessness to these, this ability to be able to have the familiar and then keep it keep it new. Um, I mean, there are so many things that actually kind of date this film that aren't in this particular minute. Like I think Moby's score is fantastic, but also the production of it 
is just like reeks of early nineties. Like you, it just it's crying out for a remaster <laughs> yes. in a way. That, I mean, it's a very tinkly piano that is, is part of when God knows over the water. As, as wonderful as the melody is, and as great and as talented as Moby is, you know, it is kind of piano. it is. That. It's 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 a bit like you know, you, yeah, it doesn't. It hasn't aged quite as well as perhaps other aspects of the film. But, yeah, it is really true, like what you're saying about how this there's this style and it's a very knowing style and it's a very obvious nod in the way that Black and Tarantino, you know, will will, will do play around with these sorts of um, formulas and archetypes. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of those things that separates Michael Mann from – because he essentially is a weird – in a weird way is like a contemporary of all these people – um, but like a Malik, you know, because he makes movies, was making movies rarely and they come, you know, every three to five years as opposed to, you know, every year. Um, mm. He's, you kind of, when he sheds all of the, the trimmings of the time, you know, he sheds all the fashion, what's fashionable of, you know, contemporary American cinema just to make movies that he wants to make in the style that he wants to make them for what you know, mm. for whatever reason, um, it then starts to, you start to go, Oh, this guy has a really unique voice and, and, and everything that's happening here is reinforced in that point. What are, yeah. uh, uh, you, you've seen a lot of movies and I, you've seen a lot of movies, Andy, and I know like fairly recently, is there like, there going to be a time where, you know, cause I think see there's like the, you know, there's huge man sort of a files out there, like, Nolans and things like that that are sort of very, very influenced by people like Michael Mann and there's other filmmakers. Is there like, I don't know, are we seeing people who've got a command of themes and style emerging in this way that, you know, you're seeing in stuff that's happening? Uh, yeah, there is some of this stuff and I think a lot of it is happening in Korea, oddly enough. There's a lot of these amazingly stylish police dramas. There's um There was a film a few years ago, uh, Black Hole Thin Ice that was yes. kind of mannish. I don't know if you saw that. Yes, I did see that. That was a good right, film. Yeah. Very mannish. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, again, like, you know, fantastic locations, beautiful widescreen shots. Um, the, that director has a film who, that whose name escapes me but is playing at Cannes this year. I will report back. Yes, um, great. And he's got a, a new one that's uh, like another police drama th- uh, thriller. Um, so... There was a fantastic film, film that uh, kind of has a, a, quite a few mannerisms and mixes up with horror um, called the oh my god the yearning, um, yearning. Which, the yearning yeah it was another police drama a lot of rain a lot of uh, you know in uh, cityscapes um, it has a bit of a horror element to it the supernatural element to it but it also it has quite a lot of that sort of man look about it. Um, uh, Jiao Yinan is that director of uh, Black Hole Thin Ice. Um, I, I really en- I enjoyed Black Hole Thin Ice. I enjoyed it. It was uh, it was it was one of those movies that I don't. It's one of those movies that I, I want to like say this without being insulting. It's like one of those movies in the midst of seeing a bunch of festival movies that you kind of go. There was so much that I liked, but like I need I need more time with it. Like I and you mm. never you rarely afforded that if you're in the midst of as Andy's going to be. And as we're sort of approaching festival season in Oz and internationally, um, you don't get a chance to like savor something. You're like, that movie sticks with me when you talk about it of like different locations, weird relationships with different, you know, police, good, you know, um, uh, completely taking right turns. Like with archetypes, where you're just like, whoa, like I, they've just spent, an hour building up this archetype and you know what you feel like is oh they're telegraphing this to do this and then it just completely takes a left and you're like wow okay that's awesome 
that's that's yeah. actually interesting. It's doing something slightly different. Um, but yeah, look, yeah, a wordless mm. minute, a wordless minute at the <laughs> yeah. in, mm. in one of the final six in an epic that is just riddled with style. It doesn't say a single word of dialogue, not a single word of dialogue. Yeah, it doesn't uh, need to. Doesn't yeah. need to. It's so mm. nice. It, puts, it doesn't. Yeah, need it puts to. all even greater emphasis on the dialogue to come. Two more the fact lines. That there's so much. Two more lines, yeah. The fact that there's so much leading up to these lines. Yeah, it's great. And, um, the, and the least florid lines of the entire movie. It's literally yeah. a call and response. The final two lines. I told you I was never going back. And Vincent Hanna saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, but also, uh, yeah, we shouldn't be spoiling it. I've surely got a lot to say about those two lines. <laughs> I, I do. Um, I have an immense amount to say about those two lines. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I can't think of any other things that are particularly man-esque. Um, those are the ones that stand out, is these sorts of, like, um, I guess, you know, would you say internal affairs? Sorry, infernal affairs infernal, is kind of... Yeah, infernal affairs has got that. I, I'm, it's very I'm old. Thinking, now, but, I'm thinking about, you know, what I was kind of getting to that is, you know, is filmmakers who are tackling... And, and I think from a completely different standpoint, I'll say something like the movie Burning is a movie that yeah. is so loaded with character and dialogue and story and inferences and things like that that's, that's very dialogue heavy in, in sort of this weird protracted love triangle of, you know, three people. Um, it It plays its... Uh, politics sort of in such a wonderful way that is completely overt and like, but it's, it's, it's sorry, completely authentic, but also completely metaphorical at the same time. It's like, you know, grounded metaphorical, same time, very Antonioni esque and therefore man, because man has lots of splashes of Antonioni in the way that he goes about things. Um, but I, right, yeah. but I guess, what, where, where I'm coming from, what I really like about Burning, and this is one of those things that really resonates with me, is that it, Burning feels like it gets sm- more more small and more terrifying and more interior every minute that leads to the ending of the movie. And so I think that that's what I guess where I was coming from, is not only is he, you know, thematically on point with what man is sort of essaying in so many of his films about professionals and and and, and purpose... Um, but also, you know, understanding that for some weird reason in a lot of, whether it's action films or, you know, these heightened dramas and things like that is the crescendos become so epic and massive that, that I feel like that shouldn't be, you know, the great centerpiece of heat happens like an hour ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, good point. And so it's like now after it balloons in the middle, it's this. It's this ratcheting down to what is absolutely key, absolutely elemental, absolutely small, but that small thing, it, it's like it's, it's, it's like that thing that defies science. It like weighs, you know, it's mm. the size of a, a sugar cube, but it weighs the size of a jet plane. You know, it's like it's this yeah, thing yeah. that stripping things away is not taking anything away from it. It's in fact like loading everything that we're seeing. It's just talking about stylistically, formally, narratively and like and just these two two beings these two great actors these two great storied 
individuals who we're projecting all this stuff on and all of their own career baggage. It's just all yeah. happening in the most minimalistic, stylistic way possible. And it's just, it, it's, it's packing the biggest punch. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, really great description. I guess it does make me think of the sisters brothers. I don't know if you saw that film. Yes, absolutely. That had, agree. And that, and talking about defying expectation. Yeah. And having a very quiet ending, quiet. but also, yeah. And just like, yeah, it's kind of like so, sideswiping you in a way. Yeah. yeah. With this sort of, Oh wow, that's where it ends. Yeah, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Oh, there it is. Yeah, I yeah two great actors, beautiful shots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unexpected. Unexpected. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know how much Jacques uh, Audiard is influenced by Michael Mann, but um, but yeah, it it does show that there is this sort of beautiful way of storytelling that not enough people do. I think it's it's a difficult thing to pull off. Difficult, very difficult to pull off. You mm. you kind of you know, and even for Mann, so guys, essaying this subject for a long time. He's done Manhunter already. He's done Thief already. He's done Jericho Mile. He's got, you know, he's he's got where these guys are from. He's got the cop side. He's got a crook side down. He's done Miami Vice for years. Yeah, he's even yeah, done LA yeah. Takedown. He's he's had a first draft at this in 1989 um, before sort of coming back to it and, and doing it again. So, you know, it does take some time mm. to sort of master the perfection. But, look, I think I think that's why we're, we're talking about it. That's why I've spent almost 140, 50 hours uh, at this point talking about it is because it's rare. It's rare. Yeah. We can say that it's rare and, you know, this single foot chase, this beautiful stylized dialogueless foot chase at the end of this epic is is exactly what we need. We don't Mm. need the big dialogue heavy glib something. Gargantuan battle. It's done. We want this. Um, and and before I I disappear and never <laughs> for the um, off this podcast, <laughs> I did want to bring up uh, his experiences working on Miami Vice because, um, being somebody who's very familiar with the work of David Lynch and particularly in Twin Peaks, often I will lazily say Lynch is one of the first pe- people to make television cinematic. But actually, of course, Michael Mann had been doing it earlier with Miami Vice. But and I think there's a lot of fantastic lessons that you can you can learn from working on television that you can see at like actually in play here. There was a fantastic economy of scale of storytelling. There's this way that obviously there you have to do a lot of in-camera things. So you know you, you don't have time for multi-camera setups for when you're shooting something like Miami Vice. You go under the pump. You've got a lot of people on set, so you end up doing a lot of in-camera. Effects. I think you can also see this in the work of Edgar Wright, who was worked on yes. space before he did TV. So there's lots of whip pans, there's lots of crash zooms, these sorts of things that you can do quickly on the set of a TV show. That also, you know, he can he then employs in a minute like this, just a really great effect. So and, and, and also we just, we talked about lengthy shots of them running and things like that. That is a thing that says I don't have time. Like, how can I yeah. tell this story st- exactly as you said? Like, stitch it together. If I need to show that this at, this guy is getting from point A to point B and I can't be glib with it, well, if I'm stripping it back, why not just make us watch him? Like, there's a certain beautiful agony to, like, not pacing yeah. it. Like, actually watching every single step be taken. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I Lynch in Peaks in a completely different set of muscle flexes, you know, working a completely mm. different part. But man, absolutely in in just in prestige TV. Like you can't, you know, I, I think the 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 glut of prestige TV that we have now, like people people have short attention span for 
Oh, and also for, for us, the week that we're recording this is the week where everyone's like, where do I go to the bathroom during Ed Game? It's three yeah, hours. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to say... Well, if, they, on this, if they're not talking about Game of Thrones, yeah. <laughs> if they're not talking about Game of Thrones. And on this show, I want to unequivocally say, shut the fuck up, okay? Everyone, you can hold yourself going to the bathroom. Titanic is 14 minutes longer. Like the yeah. Oscar-winning, <laughs> highest-grossing movie ever... Is the best edited film of that year was <laughs> 14 minutes longer than Endgame. Is yeah. is 14 minutes longer than Endgame. So everyone can just shut the front door and just stop. If you're not being funny about it, get out. Get out. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. If a movie is three hours long and it's engaging, you don't notice that it's three hours. This nearly three-hour absolute masterpiece and what I think now... 161 minutes into examining it, I can undeniably say is a masterpiece. You don't want to get up. When do you want to get up in this movie? There's no time. There's no time to get up in this yeah. movie. I, but I, I do appreciate, like getting back to you, what you were saying about men running, um, is that like, can you imagine <laughs> that De Niro would have gone, can you not just like cut from me running around <laughs> the corner here to me like arriving at this corner here? Like, on oh, okay, you want me to run right all the way across in front of an airplane carrier? Like, I, th- I think yeah. De Niro is the kind of guy who's game. It's more like, yeah. I feel like if he had the conversation first with De Niro and De Niro said to Pacino and said, okay, oh, I'm going to run. Pacino's yeah. probably going like this. Pacino's probably going, oh, fuck's sake, Bob. Oh, fucking method bullshit. Yeah, man, no worries. Um, yeah, I'll just yeah. I'll do it while carrying a rifle. Yeah, that's all, no problem. Yeah. yeah, I'll run with a shotgun, like, at speed. I'm, like, clearly a few inches shorter than you and I've got a... A, a more florid suit, you know, more like, you know, heavy suit with these oversized yeah. 90s jackets. Um, but no, I think they do it. Yeah. I, 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 I think that that's just, I think you forget. I think great, you know, if anyone gets a chance, um, there's an Abbas, um, I, I may have mentioned him a couple of times on the show, just like in passing, but talking about it here is, it's just framed it for me. This is an amazing Iranian filmmaker who's now passed called Abbas Kiarostami. And he has a film called A Taste of Cherry. He has many great films, but this film, Taste of Cherry. Um, And in it, a person gets a phone call on a mobile phone and has to drive to get signal on the phone. (laughs) And when he does it, it happens like three or four times in the movie. And Kiarostami like makes you watch this guy get the call, run to his car, which is like 150 meters away, get in the car, drive out of town to a hill. And he does it. And for even the first time, I think maybe he does one or two cuts to like speed up time. But as it progresses, (laughs) he like does it to the point of like agony. Like you're literally watching the five minutes or six minutes that it takes this guy to get to his car, drive out of town to get to this hill drive up to the top of the hill and like answer this phone call. It's complete frustration for you as an audience member. And so I think that it's such a refreshing thing sometimes to see like, this is actually happening. It's like that. I'm what I'm watching someone do something in real time and there's a purpose for it. And it's again, it's all about the tension. It's all about the release. It's all about the agony in your mind. Are these guys going to be exhausted? Are they going to make a mistake? Are they, they've had to run all the way out here. They're in a vulnerable position. What's going to happen? Yeah, yeah, and but it only works if you're invested beforehand. <laughs> and I yes. see Lynch. Lynch does this all the time. <laughs> yes. Like, just plays with this thing, like drag stuff out, 
to ridiculous lengths, like watching TV in syrup sometimes, you know, it's just everything's taking so long. But it matters, like you were saying, like it, like well, over the time we've got to the 100, we are invested. We want to know what happens next. We want to see this thing that we kind of can predict but also is going to surprise us. Yeah, it's great. And I love the aborting Kiristami. did not see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. 161 minutes in, we're talking about Alas Kiristami. <laughs> One of my yeah. top 10 favorite films all time. Anyone who listens to this show, I hope you can like a recommendation. His movie Closer is yes. just... Yeah, is close a, it is unbelievable. Mm. Unbelievable. Yep. And mind-bogglingly weird in concept. It is essentially a, a, re, a dramatic reenactment of something that really happened with the people who all did it and lived it in real life. It's kind of like that... What was like that... Clint Eastwood movie about Paris was like, you know, 13. Oh yeah. yeah. Like the 15, 17, 15, seven to Paris or whatever. Like that, that, that weird train movie where he had the real people involved in a terrorist attack play themselves in a dramatic retelling of it. It's kind of like that, but, but good, but good and way more manipulative. And in my mind, for anyone who saw American beauty and saw the like weird kid played by Wes Bentley, like, filming a plastic bag in that movie. Um, yeah. I think that is directly ripped from Closer, like just Kurosami, like languidly pausing the entire weird dramatization documentary thing into just capturing a plastic bag rolling down the street. Um, so, uh, yeah, I can tell that Sam Raimi's definitely a fan of Kurosami after watching that. But random mm. tangent. That's the randomest random tangent. tangent. Yeah. Random That's tangent. what you get on this podcast. That's what you get. Random That's what, tangent. <laughs> That's what you get again. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please thank me in, uh, in in having the awesome Andy Hayes all along again for the last. Thanks so time. much for the. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute thrill, and congratulations. Thank you, mate. I'm sure some people out there thought you couldn't do it, and here you are proving them wrong. And look, if they if they thought that, you know, they were probably me because I didn't imagine. <laughs> like in some <laughs> ways, I didn't imagine that I would be here. And I would be still doing this and that people would be enjoying it and listening. So thank you so much um, to everyone there. Um, ladies and gentlemen, you can find Andy at Andy Ricky, R-I-C-K-I-E, on Twitter. Um, and you, you jump from there to um, Cultural Capital Podcasts, obviously, um, his incredible Twin Peaks podcast, which is now season three. Is, is, is it called oh, yeah, season yeah. three? What is this? Yeah, twin, well, this or the is return? The yeah, Twin Peaks season three. The, yeah, I had to throw both in the title because it's officially called Twin Peaks: The Return. But then apparently David Lynch didn't like the idea of calling it anything apart from season three, so I did both. Okay. Well, look, you know, if if Lynch doesn't want to call it anything but season three, you've got to go with the man, right? He's the man. Kind of, kind of have to. You got to go with the man. <laughs> um, or you can find him writing for the SaturdayPaper.com.au. You can also find him there, guys. Thank you so much for listening, Andy. Thank you so much again. Mr. Garth Franklin, thank you for our web design. Mr. Paul Davies for our theme. And we'll catch you on another episode of One Eight Minute, just around the corner, floating, disembodied with the camera, <laughs> waiting, anticipating, because there's not too many corners we can go around before this show's over. 